welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we are watching The Man Who Would Be King. Two British former soldiers decide to set themselves up as kings in Kafiristan, a land where no white man has set foot since Alexander the Great. Alrighty. That no white man line, really doing a lot there. Yeah. Okay, let's say this up top. This movie... Pretty fucking racist. Oh, it is the most racist. So racist. So racist. Which is so disappointing because as an adventure movie, pretty good. Very good. And like, yeah, like you could take out the racist and it would be so enjoyable. It's. (laughs) It really, it really would. This movie falls into a really weird place of being a movie meant to be made like 20 years before. Yeah. But but coming out before a time when we knew how to treat these stories better. I mean, okay, even if it was made 20 years before, it's still racist. Very. Still very racist. So, like, we're just not going to excuse that in any way, shape, or form. Absolutely not. No. Um, and we're also not going to gloss over the fact that our two main actors perform in brownface. <sighs> I'm so disappointed in you. Michael Caine and Sean Connery. Sean Connery for the second time. The second time. Playing a race that he is not. That he is not. He's done yellow face and brown face. And now brown face. Here's the thing. He did brown face this same year in another movie. <sighs> I'm so disappointed. White people. White people are the worst. Uh, imperialists. Oh, oh. <laughs> but yeah, seriously. Well, and, I mean, and, uh, yeah. and that's the <laughs> other thing about this movie. It's not just the racism. It's the imperialist colonialist racism it's so bad and it's so bad by a lot (laughs) which makes me feel so bad for doing and yet there's a great adventure story here which is so marred by all this racist bullshit and that's what's sad and it's just like man i just really want y'all to remake this story because this could be so fun yeah in reading the trivia there's some interesting things that that come out of it where i feel There's no excuse for the racism, but there is an understanding of how we got there and how we could not do that if we remade this. Sure. I mean, and that was one of the things I kept thinking, like, how do we do this in like if we made this film in 2021, how do we make this film and not do these things? And I I think we'll we'll discover some of those things as we talk. The budget for this film was eight million dollars. It grossed a total of eleven million dollars. Okay. But I don't know that it was showing in like that many theaters. So it did fine for a swashbuckling adventure film. But let's get into our writing. And I think this is where we have most of our problems. Okay. This is based off of an original story of one Rudyard Kipling. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Kipling, of course, was a prolific British writer who was raised in India and also had a little bit of a penchant for celebrating colonialism. Mm-hmm. Yes, that, that is factual. Uh, he is problematic as fuck. If you've ever heard of his poem, The White Man's Burden, it is the biggest apologetic for colonialist racism ever. Ooh, that sounds bad. And it's, it's one thing to have written that stuff in the time. But his writings mm-hmm. fed the colonial exploits of England and eventually the United States. It's just so bad. Like, it's almost propaganda. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, Kipling serves a very horrible place in the histories of a lot of conquered places throughout history. And so this being based off of his work, we've already got an issue at hand. 
Yep. Among his works that have been adapted for film are Gunga Din, Wee Willie Winkie, The Jungle Book, of course, probably mm-hmm. where most people have heard his name, mm-hmm. The Light That Failed, and Ricky Tiki Tavi. Okay. We're already starting off not good. Mm-hmm. Now, our screenplay is written predominantly by John Huston, who is also our director. Now, if that same sounds familiar, this is the father of Angelica Houston and Danny Houston. Oh, okay. He is the patriarch of acting legacy. In fact, his father he cast in his own films and made him a star. Oh, okay. He's a legend in front of and behind the camera. He also acted in a lot of great films and, you know, had his own accolades for that. The other thing is he was known for being a rebel. He's probably the first true independent filmmaker. Like in the 40s and 50s, he was doing he was bucking against the system like Scorsese and mm-hmm. Coppola would do in the 70s. Sure. So he he is a fascinating figure. Now, writing-wise, before this, he writes A House Divided, Murders in the Room Morgue, It Happened in Paris, Jezebel, 1939's Wuthering Heights, High Sierra, The Maltese Falcon. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Key Largo, The Asphalt Jungle, The Red Badge of Courage, The African Queen, 1952's Moulin Rouge, Beat the Devil, the 1956 Moby Dick, and The Night of the Iguana. This is the last movie he really writes. Oh, okay. And adapts for his own purposes. So I have not seen any of those movies, but I know about them. There are several on there that are like, these are movies you need to see before you die kind of movies. Yeah, yeah, I know. We're we're working on it. We have a podcast. I will say this. If you have HBO Max, I can pretty much bet some of those movies are on there with with the Turner Classic Movies partnership. That's fair. The other screenplay credit goes to Gladys Hill, who is his longtime associate and assistant. And she has very few credits in anything, but she worked with him closely and so apparently helped write this screenplay. Mm-hmm. What do we think of the writing? I mean, the racism <laughs> and awfulness aside. I like the adventure. The story the, is so good. The story's great. The framework is okay. The characters are Phenomenal. The, I mean, you got two dudes who are like, hey, uh, we want to be con artists because that's what sounds cool for us. Uh, this is what we're good at. So that's what we're going to do. I have your records before me. There's everything in them from smuggling to swindling to receiving stolen goods to barefaced blackmail. Sir, I resent the accusation of blackmail. It is blackmail to obtain money by threats of publishing information in a newspaper. But what blackmail is there in accepting a small retainer for keeping it out of a newspaper? And how did you propose to keep it out? By telling the editor what I know about his sister and a certain government official in these parts. Let him put that in his paper if he has need of news. Peachy and Daniel are conmen with giant ambitions and egos. And like normally with a con movie, the person's trying to be unassuming, right? No, but they're just like, no, this is what we're going to do. Their con is being as brash and bold as humanly possible, and it's gotten them wherever they need to go. Now, there's a big allegory about white privilege there. Oh, 100%. And I'm, I must also say that for me, like watching this film with Michael Caine is just delightful that he's playing a con artist just in that. And he's kind of the lesser of the con artist to a degree <laughs> because my first introduction to Michael Caine was Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Yeah. So this is just like, oh, this is just 
this is just so fun. But this, the construct of the film is fabulous. It's a great adventure. The execution, horrible. And and not just... All the, the problematic stuff. Like, if we remove that from that, but because there's too much business in the film. There should have been more montage. This film is too long. It is. And I think something else that happens is that there's very little critical look at the characters until very close to the end of the film. And we don't see the cracks in their relationship until the one gets bigger than the other. Until Daniel realizes he might have absolute power here and decides he's going to take that chance. Yeah. But the framing of the story never has the opportunity for somebody to call these two guys out for being god-awful. No, that should be happening constantly. Exactly. It should be happening all the time, and they're not realizing it. No, and so Houston was a disciple of Rudyard Kipling. Uh, okay. He thoroughly loved his stories. He said, quote, I read so much Kipling, it's in my unconscious. You start a verse, I'll finish it. Kipling writes about a world gone, a geography gone. It's the world of adventure, high honor, mystery, unquote. Okay. So in terms of crafting an adventure story, great source to pull from. Sure. But he is so devoted to the story that he's missing the opportunity to tell the deeper he's, thing here. He's one of those that he likes it so much he's not able to be critical of the thing. And having seen Treasure of the Sierra Madre mm -hmm. and having seen his work and other stuff, this is a guy whose bread and butter is a adventure stories about extremely flawed characters mm. who tragically meet their fate. Mm. That's okay. like Treasure of the Sierra Madre and the African Queen are all about that. Okay. And it's very critical of these anti-heroes. But he's so blinded by the source material here. His focus is on doing right by the source material as opposed to telling a good story. Yeah. And and he, again, we should have somebody constantly criticizing these two fuckers. Even if it's just fishy. It could be fishy. Mm-hmm. Fishy could see right through their bullshit, but it's also just like, but also, you know, I'm making money too, so what do I- Y'all are my meal ticket. Yeah. <laughs> so I ain't gonna fuck this up. Like, I'll tell y'all where you're screwing up, but I am not messing this up. But also, you two are god-awful. Like, don't get me wrong. Y'all are the worst. <laughs> that would actually work great. But it, it's, it's buying into this high honor thing, which was real, was very real sure. in that time period. But I don't know that it relates to an audience now. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know that it related to an audience then. Like, this is 1975. Yeah. I don't know that people are still going to get that point. The story takes place between 1882 and 1885. So this whole thing happens in three years. Oh, okay. <laughs> and Kafiristan was an actual place. The whole area is now the Nuristan province in Afghanistan and Chitral in Pakistan. Okay. So it's up in that Upper Crescent area. The other side of this is Houston had been trying to make this movie for a long time. Originally, he started out in the 50s, and this was going to be a vehicle for Clark Gable and Humphrey Bogart. Oh, okay. Now, Bogie could have done it, because Bogie had been in a bunch of Houston movies and has a good, dark con man foreboding presence. I yeah. don't know about Clark Gable. Yes, Clark Gable could do it, because Clark Gable can be charming AF. Give me Clark Gable as the Daniel Dravet and Humphrey as the Peachy. There you go. And we could make this work pretty well. 
However, Bogey died. Mm. And as Houston was trying to figure out who to maybe put in his place, Gable died. Yeah. So that pretty much ruined those plans. Sure. At one point, uh, Mike Todd, who had produced Around the World in 80 Days, considered making this with John Houston, bringing in Gary Cooper. But Todd also died in a plane crash. Jeez. So that didn't happen. Terry Gilliam production? Oh, boy. So now he reimagines the whole thing in the 60s with Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas. Okay. Two more stiff guys. But Kirk Douglas, I could see. Burt Lancaster is a magnificent actor, but not known for this kind of a role. Then he comes up with Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole, which of everybody I've heard is like, damn, that's a duo. Yeah, okay. Peter O'Toole, magnificent in the languid con man type thing and Richard Burton nervous. And then finally, (laughs) that doesn't work. So he comes up with Robert Redford and Paul Newman. Of course he does. Now, we love Redford and Newman. He didn't come up with that. He saw them in a movie. A fair. (laughs) And was like, hot dude, let's go. Who could blame them? Yeah, let's put those two and everything together. Hot dudes with perfect chemistry. Yeah. Newman turned it down. Sure. But Newman was the one who suggested Connery and Kane. This is awesome. And those two are thick as thieves' friends. I love this. So it worked out. He finally had his duo. So he's also had this project for 25 years. Sure. That's adding to some of the blindness to... Sure. Missing the point of the story. Sure. Also, Kipling's membership in the Freemasons is a major plot point in the film. Mm -hmm. We hear phrases like on the level and secret handshakes and all throughout the movie. And man, that is another element that really doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Because Kipling could have been the one commenting on it the whole time. Yep. Like you could princess bride this a little bit. Oh, yeah. And come back to Kipling being like, what the fuck is wrong with y'all? Yeah. (laughs) But he doesn't because they're Masons. Yep. The fellow, there's honor in their fellow masons. No, there's not. God. Ugh. Supposing I was to ask you, as a stranger going to the West, to seek for that which was lost, what would you say then? I should answer, where do you come from? From the East, and I am hoping that you will give my message on the square for the sake of the widow's son. Which lodge do you hail from? Travelling Lodge 3276, the poor and fit. The Queen's own Royal Loyal Light Infantry, Regimental District 329A. Anyway, just missing the forest for the trees there. A lot. That's a lot of this movie. Now let me talk about where I think John Huston really does succeed, is the directing of this film. Before this, he directed The Maltese Falcon, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Key Largo, We Were Strangers, The Asphalt Jungle, The Red Badge of Courage, The African Queen, Moulin Rouge, Beat the Devil, Moby Dick, Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, A Farewell to Arms, The Misfits, The Night of the Iguana. He was one of the five directors of the 1967 Casino Royale. Jesus. But in the scenes we enjoyed with David Niven at the estate. (laughs) I I forgot that there were parts of the movies we enjoyed. There, there were. The, the, that was the one few moment where we were like, this is kind of fun. Reflections in a Golden Eye, Fat City, and The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean. After this, he directs Wise Blood, Victory, Annie, Pritzi's Honor, and The Dead. Okay. Uh, what do we think of his directing of this movie? I mean, it's too long. That is true. too long. But I love the adventure. I do love the adventure, but like I said, like a lot of this movie should have been, there should have been too much in montage. 
this movie should have been about 90 to 100 minutes. Yeah. This does not need to be a two hour plus movie. No, there's not no at all. reason for it. Nope. Nope. But it's nope. like that long sweeping shots of stuff. It's it's like he's got one foot in old school Hollywood and one foot in new school, and he just doesn't quite have the balance right on this movie. No, we know. It's very frustrating. Houston was apparently a pretty hands-off director. Michael Caine mentioned that a few weeks in, he and Connery were getting worried because they weren't getting a lot of feedback or direction from him. No, okay. Caine approached and asked if there was anything wrong if Houston was okay with their performances. So Houston replied, quote, You're getting paid a lot of money to do this, Michael. I think you should do it by yourself. (laughs) That's very funny. I like that. These two guys were used to having directors tell them what to do, and John Houston was not that man. I mean, that's totally totally fair. I appreciate that. Like, I hired you because you know what you're doing. I'm not going to tell you what to do unless I need you to do something. It's very old school director. No, that's totally fair. I find that hilarious. And I'm totally going to steal that with other people at work. <laughs> I'm going to be like, you're getting paid a lot of money to, to do your job. I don't need to tell you how to do it. Houston apparently only referred to Connery and Kane by their character names, Daniel and Peachy. Cute. And Kane admitted that Connery and he improvised some dialogue and scenes entirely for the film. Mm, that does not surprise me at all. No. Not those two. Nope. And that gets us to our cast. Mm. And we start with someone we are very familiar with. Oh, that dude. Sean Connery playing Daniel Dravitt. Yep, we know that dude. Apart from playing Bond. Yep. Like. A lot. A lot. Even in some non-sanctioned Bond films. One. One. (laughs) Uh, Before this, he did lots of television in small roles, The Longest Day, and then Dr. No, and we won't go through the rest of that run. Sure. He's also in Marnie. Shalako, mm-hmm. The Red Tent, The Molly Maguires, The Anderson Tapes, Zardoz, Murder on the Orient Express, and The Wind and the Lion, another movie in which he plays a Middle Eastern person. Jesus. I, yeah, I know. No. After this, Robin and Marion, A Bridge Too Far, The Great Train Robbery, Outland, Time Bandits, Wrong is Right, Never Say Never Again, Highlander, The Name of the Rose, The Untouchables, The Presidio, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, The Hunt for Red October, Highlander 2, The Quickening, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Medicine Man, Rising Sun, First Night, Dragonheart, The Rock, The Avengers in 1998, Entrapment, Finding Forrester, and The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen before retiring. Okay. What do we think of Sean Connery in this movie? He's great. He's Sean Connery. Holy hell, he's charming. He's very charming. This is Sean Connery using all that Bond charisma, Mm -hmm. but then channeling it also into a smirky fun level. He's he's got that Poirot uh, mustache, so he's very twirly mustachey about it, which is very fun. And he's being very playful. He's such a con man in this movie. He's very much a con man. And that was something that he didn't get to do with his Bond. No. Which... You know, when he got to be playful and have fun, we loved it. And we always felt that was missing for him. Yeah. Because he does it so well. And so here he gets to be playful and it's great. And then having Michael Caine as opposite him is just charming. He considers this his favorite film role. You can tell he's having fun. He's just playing. He's having so much fun. And it re- it is so interesting to see this and like contrast with Diamonds Are Forever. 
when he's just oh, you can tell he's miserable. fucking checked out. He's miserable. It's interesting. The two of them playing reminds me so much of George Clooney, Brad Pitt in Ocean's Eleven. You can just tell they're having fun together. Oh, yeah. And those two weren't as quippy in their film, but you can just tell they enjoy being around each other and that they are have, they're playing. It sucks these two aren't in more things together. Uh, yes. Just based off of the sheer raw energy <laughs> that these two exude together. Mm-hmm. It's very good. I do like knowing that they were very good friends. Oh, yeah. That makes me happy. Let's talk about the other charismatic dude in this film. Mm-hmm. It's Michael Caine playing Peachy Tolliver Carnahan. Mm-hmm. This man never made a movie he didn't like. <laughs> before this, he was in a lot of small roles before his breakout in Zulu in 1964. Then The Ipcrest File, where he plays another lesser-known spy, a lot like James Bond. Mm-hmm. He had a run where he just did that. Yep. Then Alfie, mm-hmm. The Italian Job, Battle of Britain, The Last Valley, Get Carter from 1971, Pulp, Sleuth from 1972, and The Destructors. After this, A Bridge Too Far, The Swarm, California Suite, Dress to Kill, Victory, Death Trap, Educating Rita, Hannah and Her Sisters, Sweet Liberty, Mona Lisa, Jaws the Revenge, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Noises Off, The Muppet Christmas Carol, On Deadly Ground, The Cider House Rules, Quills, Get Carter in 2000, Miss Congeniality, Austin Powers and Goldmember, Secondhand Lions, Batman Begins, Bewitched, Children of Men, The Prestige, Sleuth from 2007, The Dark Knight, Harry Brown, Inception, Cars 2, The Dark Knight Rises, Now You See Me, Interstellar, Kingsman, The Secret Service, Youth, Now You See Me 2, and Tenet, and Coming, he will both be in Now You See Me 3, and he will be in a modern, current retelling of Oliver Twist called Twist as Fagin. Mm-mm. What do we think of Michael Caine in this film? He's the best part of the movie. He has the harder role of the two. I mean, they're both very evenly matched, but he does have the harder role of the two because he has a more dramatic turn. And I, I adore Michael Caine. I just, I adore him so (laughs) much. This is still in that period before he became more elder statesman Michael Caine. Well, and that's what was so weird for me to watch because I met him as elder statesman. I met him as... That's how all of us know Michael Caine. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I mean, I know that movie backwards and forwards. Yeah. I watched it on a continuous loop as a child. And so for this, not only is it a very similar character, but then it's so, he's so young comparatively. And so it's just like, wow, like you were still, you were still very attractive. I do prefer older Michael Caine. Um, (laughs) But it's like, and you're a ginger too, which is adorable. It's so funny to me. It's so funny. Yeah, this is, this is still, this is like the tail end of his original movie stardom. Yeah. And his original British stardom. Totally. He's sort of a a cheeky, suave sex symbol. Yeah, no, I get it. It's just, it's so funny. (laughs) He's he's phenomenal. It's interesting you say that. First of all, I agree. He is the glue that's holding the whole story together because, of course, he's the narrator of the story. Well, he's the narrator, but he's he's the one who has to make that dramatic turn. Yeah. He's the one who tells us the story. Yeah. Which I don't love that. The makeup's way too heavy on him in the beginning. It's too much. <laughs> it's too much. And it shouldn't be that. It shouldn't be that at all. Yeah. And that was a complete misstep. It's interesting, though, because the critics mm-hmm. 
railed against him for this performance. Really? They said he was completely overacting. Nope. Way too hammy. Mm-mm. Which, judging by the standards of some of these movies that we've watched and what they were looking for, I kind of get it. Compared to the other films that we're watching at this time, this film is a complete in a completely different universe. It, it is. This is from a, this film is from 20 years before. It's it's a movie that belongs in a in a generation before it and yet he's doing a great job. Yeah. That doesn't have anything bad against it. Yeah, it's just it's so funny to me that culturally they were just like this is bad and They're it's like, like no it's really not. It's exactly what the movie needs. Mhm. If he's hamming it up too much, it's almost always because the script is forcing him into it a little too much. Well, it's it's usually because there's something big happening, so he has to rise to that. And mm-hmm. that's fair. But, I mean, he's doing a great job. Mm-hmm. And then, someone who we are very sad to have recently lost. Mm-hmm. Christopher Plummer playing Rudyard Kipling. He's so young. <sighs> yeah, this is still early middle age Christopher Plummer. So he still hasn't gone gray, isn't, you know, Mr. Old Man Presence. A legend. A true legend. Oh, sure. Before this, he was on television. Then The Sound of Music as Mm -hmm. Captain Von Trapp. Mm -hmm. Inside Daisy Clover, The Night of the Generals, Oedipus the King, Battle of Britain, Waterloo, and The Return of the Pink Panther. After this, Somewhere in Time, Dreamscape, An American Tale, Dragnet from 1987, Rockadoodle, Malcolm X, Dolores Claiborne, Twelve Monkeys, The Insider, Dracula 2000, A Beautiful Mind, Nicholas Nickleby, Cold Creek Manor, National Treasure, Alexander, Must Love Dog, Siriana, The New World, Inside Man, The Lake House, Up, The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, Beginners, The Tempest, Priest, Barrymore, Elsa and Fred, Remember, All the Money in the World, and Knives Out. Oh, Knives Out. So amazing. A hell of a career for a hell of an actor. And he's honestly really good. And I hate that we cut him out after the first 15 minutes of the movie. Well, you didn't really need him anymore. It would have been weird to have him in more unless you were going to do more of the Princess Bride thing. I feel like this movie needs that. I, I, I feel like he needs to have been like, you know, there's this Mason connection and we set you up. And then he's like. You're not worthy of this at all. <laughs> well, that would have made more sense if that character was trying to write it all down and like as Peachy's telling the story, it's like interrupting. No, wait, what? You did what now? That's not possible. This is against this rule. You did this or like, no, that would have made more sense and would have been great and would have been great for the Peachy character too. But I think that goes back to our director just trying to stick so closely to the source material that didn't think about how to present this story in the best way. Yeah, it's not that it's not that Kipling needs to be in the movie a lot, but it's that he should be throughout the movie. <laughs> and I also, you know, I don't want to discredit, you know, the, what the Princess Bride did and that like a lot of those interruptions are actually written into the actual book. Yeah. Itself, so that's not that wasn't Rob Reiner. Totally. It's also one of those things where you're like, you have an actor this good in Christopher Plummer. Mm -hmm. Why did you not utilize him as an anchor to these two really wild characters? Well, why why didn't you use him more? Yeah. Plummer would have been dismissed early on in shooting, but Connery, his good friend, Mm. insisted that he be allowed to stay on. He actually threatened to quit at one point 
because they were going to let him go. Oh. And so with that threat in mind and Connery saying, I want this, Plummer stuck around for the entire filming. That's cool. So they got to hang out. A little ridiculous. Yes. But as we'll find out, these two guys being super adamant about people being treated right works out okay for some other people. Hmm. Who could have been better? Per Plummer's autobiography, he was a late replacement for Richard Burton in this role. Mm, Okay. And Peter O'Toole was also up for this role after Houston had decided they were not right for the duo themselves. Fair. And finally, playing Billy Fish, Saeed Jaffrey, Mm. an Indian actor with many, many Bollywood credits in terms of things that we would know him from. He did tons of British television, but after this, he was in the 1978 Death on the Nile, Mm. Gandhi, The Razor's Edge, A Passage to India, and My Beautiful Laundrette. Okay. The debut of Daniel Day-Lewis. Oh, okay. What do we think of Saeed Jaffrey in this movie? He's phenomenal. Like, he's a comedic genius. Billy Fish is so good. Billy Fish is phenomenal. And, and so necessary. Oh, if you don't have him, this whole movie falls apart. He makes the movie. He really, truly does. Both in he's needed to the other characters, but he also is great commentary on the characters. Yeah. It, he should, it's, it's awkward. It's awkward because that character is an Indian colonialist soldier. Mm-hmm. Like the sure. Gurkhas were a part of the colonial conquest. They bought into that. And so it's it's all mixed up in that history. Sure. What I really respect is that he brings context to that. Sure. Because they could have easily, just based on what's on the page, this character could have been just a joke. Yeah. And instead, he makes him feel real. Oh, he's... He makes him so interesting and funny, and I just wish they had used him better. And he was perfect to really start to pull down the bullshit of these two characters, but also be like, y'all are my meal tickets, so I'm not going to fuck this up for y'all, but y'all are bullshit. Billy Fish! Man the mill and right! There's a chance you'll make it! Gurkha, foot soldier, not cavalry. Rifleman Machinder Bahadur Guru. Wishing you many good lucks. That, but he's also honor bound. Like he's the first one to jump into the fight at the end. Oh, I know. Which is it's so weird. But like he, out of everybody, it feels like really gets Mm -hmm. the actual history behind all of this. He's, I mean, he's probably the best part of this movie. It's that and the banter between the two. Oh, yeah. Those are the best things about this movie. Jeffrey, however, was often treated as secondary to the rest of the stars. Oh, they were racist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. The racist production was racist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. However, this disgusted Sean Connery and Michael Caine, who were working directly with him. Mm -hmm. In fact, during takes, Jeffrey did not have his own chair to sit in on location for a good chunk of filming. Uh Until Kane stood up, enraged one day, and shouted at the crew, Get this man a fucking chair! You had to do the voice. I'm so proud of him. I mean, it's, I mean. And also, yes, I had to do the voice. It shouldn't have lasted more than a day. No. Because a day is a, didn't think about it, did someone miscount it, whatever. Like, a day you can excuse, more than a day is. They were totally like, this guy's just a character actor. Yeah. More than a day is a choice. Yeah. More than a day is a, is, a, is a distinct choice. But James Bond and Michael Caine 
shouted them fucking down and said, treat this man with respect. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So good for them. I appreciate that. And this is why, hey, white dude, when you see something, you need to say something. It's true. Yep. But yeah, I had to do the voice. Yeah, I only supposed to play, but I doze off. Mm, yep, I knew it was coming. <laughs> every time. Every you, time. Every time you every mention time. Michael Caine, David says that. Yeah, I'm only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. And that's what David says to me. This your car? Pretty car. We're going to watch that one day. You're going to love it. I've never seen the original Italian dub. And yet, I know so much. Arpons, only a couple here. Okay. We have Albert Moses playing Gulam. He's one of the villagers. Okay. He appeared in The Spy Who Loved Me and Octopussy. Oh, okay. So he's shown up in a little bit there. And then we have playing Roxanne, the intriguing mystery woman that Daniel marries, Shakira Kane. Okay. This is Michael Kane's longtime wife. Oh. Whom he has been married to since 1973. So mm-hmm. they started filming this just after they got married. And I got to give it up for him. They've been married this whole time. As far as Hollywood marriages go, well done. She's only appeared in a handful of films, and this is probably the biggest role she ever had. Okay. Houston had not cast the role before they started shooting, and they had a small dinner party for everybody and friends and stuff. And somebody asked if he'd filled the role. Mm -hmm. So he said no, and then literally everyone at the table looked at her because she is a gorgeous woman. Mm Mm-hmm. And everybody was instantly drawn. And Houston looked at that and went, you've got the part. Wow. <laughs> because she was that captivating. I mean, she's she's a gorgeous woman. Yes. I mean, damn, Michael Caine. Um, <laughs> right? That is, that is, she's, I mean, she's a gorgeous woman. How, how, how did you land that one? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I mean, like, I, that's awesome. Yep. It just makes me happy that they've been together for almost 50 years now. That's cool. That's cool. All right, trivia. Trivia. In the making of the film, there is footage of Sean Connery performing a portion of the bridge fall, dropping 100 feet onto a pile of cardboard at the bottom of the ravine. Mm -hmm. That's fun. Except that Michael Caine, in his autobiography, elaborated, that's when the real hero took his place. Okay. Stuntman Joe Powell completed the rest of the stunt, and he, quote, fell so skillfully, twisting and turning on the way down, and at the very last minute, straightening himself out so that he hit the mattress's dead center. Houston turned to Kane right after that and said, quote, that was the darndest stunt I've ever seen, unquote. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty cool. Karoom Benbui, the actor playing high priest Kafu Salim, Mm-hmm. was a night watchman at an olive orchard nearby. An olive orchard? Yes. Okay. He was a security guard. Okay. Houston just ran across him while they were filming around. He hadn't cast that smaller part and okay. invited him to come to set. Thought he had the right look. Sure. They, they brought him on and during filming, he would fall asleep at times. Sure. And they were trying to figure out why. It was because he was still working as a night watchman. Oh. Oh my. Wow. I mean, okay. So Houston one day came over to him and made it very clear that they were going to pay him enough money that he did not need to work as a night watchman anymore. Aww. <laughs> uh, That's very sweet. That way he could, well, and partially out of practicality because that way he could just walk away from the job and sleep. Well, true, but also like, you know, movie jobs are temporary. Yeah, I know. 
Adding to this, Bowie was thought to be 103 at the time of filming. Okay, that makes sense. In his one and only film role. After seeing some of the footage, he declared that he could now live on forever. <laughs> That's funny. When Billy Fish charges the mob, he cries out, Ayogur Kali. It's actually a part of the Gurkha warrior war cry that he's screaming out. Mm, okay. Connery and Kane both sued Allied Artists, the production company, for an improper percentage of share from the contract for the profits of the film. Uh-oh. Reportedly, they got an extra $250,000 out of that. And the scene where Danny meets Roxanne was shot in southern Morocco near the city of Ouarzazati, known as Morocco's Hollywood. Both Kingdom of Heaven and the remake of The Hills Have Eyes have both shot there, but you'd probably best know it as the location of the North African arena where Maximus first has to fight in Gladiator. I would not know that. You've seen Gladiator, right? I have, but I wouldn't remember. I wouldn't know it by looking at it. Just if you remember when he's fighting in the desert the first time. Nope. All right, well. I've seen, I saw Gladiator in the theaters that one time. So did I, and apparently it made a far bigger impression. Yeah, I didn't care. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, with all of these, we will not be revealing anything specific about who may have won, but we will give our nominations. It was nominated for four Academy Awards. Best Adapted Screenplay. Okay. Best Art Direction. Okay. Best Costume for Edith Head, mm-hmm. Edna Mode. Edna Mode. And Best Film Editing. Okay. And that leads us to ratings. Or ratings. For each movie, we have its own special rating system. Mm-hmm. For this film, I feel like we have to go with the giant ruby. Okay. I'll go with a giant ruby. God, what a great moment. I also want to go with like a magic level just to mock the, the, <laughs> the Shriners. No, no. Because that just reminds me of a very funny story my family has about the Shriners. I'm sorry, the what? The Shriners. Oh, not the Shriners. The Freemasons. The Freemasons. Come yes. on. Yes, there's a very funny story in our family about the Freemasons. Hey, rubies. <sighs> The racism is going to hurt the score real bad. The racism hurts this movie a lot. I have to knock it down a lot. for Like, it gets knocked in half for the, the really bad racism. Yeah. Okay, so it's like the highest score it could get is a two and a half. I'm going to give it a two and a half. I'm not. Mm. Because of the writing and direction. <sighs> I, th- I Because, and I, I'm, I can't be like, well, that gives, but no. That isn't getting wrapped up in the 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 racism. No. That's fair. <sighs> I think I'm gonna give it one and a half <sighs> because the acting's great and I love the story, the the adventure. Yeah, I think the adventure is so fun, and I would love this story to be reimagined in a way that isn't imperialist or racist and a- allows a set of people. Any variety of genders and ethnicities to go on an, on an adventure, yeah, and con a bunch of people and could be fun and that could be interesting. Yeah, I I give it a two point five really because I f- I see the promise in that and I kind of do wrap that up with the writing, but for me the promise is so there and but the the direction is just is horrible. I don't think it's that horrible. But I think I think it misses the mark because it looked at the story as like, well, this is the we have to tell it this way. It's like, no, you don't. 
No, that's you don't. You know what? I'm gonna knock it down just an extra little bit. I still like it a little bit more, but I'm gonna give it a two for that. That it has problems, and those problems only compound the problematic nature of yep. the story they're telling. And again, it's one of those things where it's all you had to do was be more critical of these two main characters. Yeah, you needed, have somebody you needed to reflect on them. More. Just, just take a take a half a second and a beat to realize that these guys are bad guys. Not be racist to and start. To start, too. like God don't don't be racist. Don't do brownface. Also, also don't do those things. Just don't. And, and then reflect on the fact that your characters are bad in the script. It's it's a movie that part of me enjoyed, but part of me also goes, I wouldn't recommend this to anyone because a lot of movies have done this story better. Yeah. And I just want somebody else to pick this up and reimagine it. Sure. I really do. No, I, I, I agree. I agree. Well, next time we are transporting just a little ways away from 1975 mm-hmm. to 1968 and Hollywood and L.A. and hair. Because we are going to be talking about Shampoo. Oh, okay. A movie? I was confused. I was like, wait, all of our movies have to come from 1975. What are you talking about? This is technically a period piece, even though it happens less than 10 years before the movie. That's okay. Okay. Everybody hails this movie as like a great comedy. Okay. And, uh, you know. I'm interested to see what Warren Beatty brings us this time. Oh, okay. He got an entry last time in 67, so. He did. Let's see what he's bringing in 1975. Okay. Well, until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. (laughs) 